It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. In Apple Podcasts, our podcast, This Might Get Uncomfortable, is in the mental health category. And I've had conversations with people online sometimes about our subject matter, which I think tends to be extremely diverse. Whitney and myself constantly strive to represent a wide array, not only of subject matters, research findings, articles, things that pique our interest, make us curious, enrage us. But I think overall, the swath, the base coat, if you will, on the wall of this podcast, to use a analogy, is definitely the foundation of mental health, physical health, how we can find clarity and balance and well-being in this world. And one of those subjects that Whitney and I have talked about a lot here on the podcast is the subject of how technology and emerging technologies, social media, smartphones, and big tech companies are affecting our collective mental health, our sense of community, our sense of connection, or the lack thereof in human society. And it feels like, of course, since we're talking about tech, the algorithms being what they are, when I start to click on articles about mental health and technology, I start to see more articles about mental health and technology. Two or three days ago, one floated across my newsfeed and I immediately sent it to Whitney because it was like sometimes we'll see things and be like that is a perfect fit for this might get uncomfortable. And what we're going to talk about today is I think a, a very natural extension of the subject matter that we covered in previous episodes as I teased a few minutes ago where we talked about the ramifications, our thoughts and feelings of documentaries such as The Social Dilemma, Childhood 2.0, Fake Famous, how Platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and the entire universe of social media and portable digital technology is not only reshaping, literally reshaping and rewiring our brains and our brain chemistry, but more so how it's affecting young people, Gen Z, teens, and even adolescents and younger than that. We're seeing kids younger and younger these days having access and learning how to use things like iPads and iPhones at very, very, very young ages. This article that floated across my newsfeed that Whitney and I are going to dig into today is from the Wall Street Journal, and it says, Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for teen girls, company documents show. Now, my first reaction to that was like, duh, you know, not in a conspiratorial way, but wow, you're kidding me. A billion dollar corporation knows that its products and its technology are harming people. Shocker. You know, I mean... I say this not to sound anti-corporate, but if we look at the track record of big corporations in the United States, it's not exactly a gleaming track record for big tech, oil companies, pharmaceutical companies, where they know that their products are harmful, either to the environment, the earth, animal life, human life, but they continue to release these products, support these products, market these products, promote these products. Why? Because they're extremely fucking profitable. Let's just get that out of the way right away. So, When we're digging into this, keep in mind, Facebook is aware their technology and their platforms are harming people, but they're clearly not stopping because they're making a whole lot of money. So I just want to color that before we dive into here. And I want to start off, Whitney, I don't want to read this article in its entirety, of course, because it is long, but I do want to dissect some of the screenshots and the files from some of the internal documents that are actually embedded in this Wall Street Journal article. It's really interesting. There are screenshots from what it looks like a slide presentation from something called the Teen Mental Health Deep Dive. And it's pretty, I don't want to say shocking. It's not shocking. But it reinforces, I think, what we suspected, which is, again, these companies know what they're doing and they're not stopping it. So at the very beginning of this article, Wit, it highlights a young woman's journey of mental health. Her name uh, is Anastasia Vlasova, and it talks about how she started seeing a therapist and she had developed an eating disorder. 
And she had a suspicion and a clear idea of what had led to it, which was her time on Instagram. It says here she joined the platform at age 13 and was eventually spending three hours a day entranced by the seemingly perfect lives and bodies of fitness influencers who posted on the app. She says, when I went on Instagram, all I saw were images of chiseled bodies, perfect abs, and women doing 100 burpees in 10 minutes, said Miss Vlasova, now 18 years old, who lives in Reston, Virginia. Around this time, researchers inside Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, were studying this kind of experience in teenage girls and asking whether it was part of a broader phenomenon, and their findings confirmed some very serious problems. I'm going to read this last thing and then hand it over to you for your thoughts on this, Whitney. It says, in this slide presentation from Facebook's internal message board, which was reviewed and received by the Wall Street Journal, it says 32% of teenage girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Comparisons on Instagram can change how young women view and how they describe themselves. For the past three years, Facebook has been conducting extensive studies into how its photo sharing app, Instagram, affects millions of young users. And repeatedly, the company's researchers found that Instagram is harmful for a sizable percentage of them, most notably teenage girls. Again, from the internal presentation, we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, summarizing research about teenage girls who experience these issues. Teens blame Instagram for increases in their rates of depression and anxiety, said another slide. This reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. Among teens who reported suicidal thoughts, 13% of British users and 6% of American users traced the desire to kill themselves back to Instagram, one presentation showed. It gives me chills reading this, Whitney. You know, it gives me chills because it confirms, I think, what we have seen in those previous documentaries. But it gives me chills because the company's aware of this. And it doesn't appear to me they're doing shit to change it. That's why I'm getting chills. It hurts my heart to read those things. And I know for you, you have talked a lot about your struggles over the years with disordered eating. You've talked a lot about your experience as a woman feeling all of this pressure to conform to a body standard. You're not a teenage girl, but we've talked about and surmised that, my God, if Instagram and Facebook were around at the time that you and I were teens, holy shit, the amount of pressure. And I want to hand it back to you because certainly this is a very dense and intense subject we're talking about where teens are tracing Instagram to their desire to kill themselves. That's where I left it. And that's heavy. That's probably as heavy as it gets. Yeah. And, and sadly, it isn't surprising. And perhaps that's because we have talked about this so much and seen the documentaries like you mentioned. But it's like, is it not, you know, we can't get numb just because something seems obvious to me. And and I think into this mindset of, well, that's just the way it is, is, is really dangerous. And it's interesting because it tends to be the case for us as human beings that we experiment a lot. And sadly, people are impacted in a negative way by something because it is widely adapted before we even understand the harm. And and the connection with smoking, as the article brings up at one point, is a really good one. You know, another one, just as a side note that I found really interesting, this is actually more COVID related, but I saw this compilation video of people reacting to seatbelt laws and how outraged people were when seatbelt belts came into like law enforcement and how, you know, you're required and you can get a ticket and, you know, it's for your own safety. But this compilation showed this video of people saying, well, seatbelts are uncomfortable or they're going to mess up my clothes and on and on. And the, the point of the video is actually to compare that to people wearing masks and their reaction, like masks are inconvenient and they're uncomfortable and they mess up my makeup or, you know, I can't breathe, whatever else. And it reminded me of just how resistant we are to something that might be good for us. And it's really hard for people to change until sometimes they're forced to change. And it reminds me of this because if we don't have regulations around social media usage, a lot of people are either ignorant or they're enjoying it too much. I mean, I've talked a lot about my relationship with TikTok, you know, as an adult woman who specializes in well-being and studies all these articles. 
I find myself very frequently using TikTok as a coping mechanism. As in, I, it actually happened earlier today. I go through ups and downs with my mood, as many people do. And earlier today, I was just like, it's Saturday and I'm kind of tired and I just want to lay around and not do anything. And the only thing that felt interesting to me was to use TikTok. And I was on TikTok for a while. I don't even know how long. And I thought, I'm not actually enjoying this, <laughs> but I am still doing it. And I walked away, put it down, and I thought, maybe I should read a book. And I'm like, nah, I don't feel like reading a book. And I got back on TikTok. Maybe I should just like watch a TV show or a movie or you know, go take a walk. And nothing appealed to me. All I want to do is just sit there on TikTok, consciously knowing that it wasn't really helping me in the way that I was reaching out to it for, right? And I think you could say the same thing about drugs and cigarettes and a lot of other things that we know aren't good for us, but we do anyways because they give us enough of a good feeling, right? Or they've become such a big part of our lifestyle that it's hard to imagine not doing or using these things. You know, I, just like you, Jason, often think about my relationship with social media as a content creator. And there's a lot of positives to it for me, but I've also been doing it for a long time and developed my own relationship with it for the most part. There's another percentage in my brain that has like this automatic, like knee jerk relationship with social media that doesn't feel like it's best for me, but I'm doing it because everyone else is doing it, right? I'm doing it because it feels good or it gives me like a temporary sense of happiness or whatever. But along with that, I'm very aware that the comparison trap is there for sure. And that's what's brought up in this Wall Street Journal article is how harmful the comparison can be. And absolutely, it's well known that Instagram is a place where people tend to post their highlight reels. You know, it's a place where people kind of expect you to post about your life. And I sometimes feel like the odd one out for not posting frequently. I'm like, do people think that, I don't know what I think people think, but it's like this deep fear that I'm an outcast because I don't post frequently on Instagram. You know what I mean? But the reason I don't post is because I don't want to always post my highlight reel. And I absolutely do not want to participate in a system as a woman posting the best photos of myself for what reason? You know, and this is the thing that's important. When I look at articles like this and I think about like, why is it that we're looking at these things, but why is it that some people are posting these things? And you and I, Jason, have had friends and probably still do that participate in this, where it is posting the best photos of themselves, editing them often, using angles, using lighting, using whatever they possibly can to get themselves to look a certain way in that still photo. And first of all, it doesn't capture the essence of who they really are as a human being. And I think this is part of the reason that I feel uncomfortable posting a lot of times, especially photos of myself, is I'm like, that's not me. You know what I mean? That was a moment in time that was captured of me. But if I start posing, if I start editing, if I start like doing all these things to manipulate myself, that's not actually who I am. And I don't want to falsely represent myself, A, for myself, but B, for other people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to participate and make everybody think that I look like that all the time, right? When you see the behind the scenes of photo shoots, for example, and some of the links to which like fitness influencers, as you mentioned before, Jason, will go to, to pose a certain way, look a certain way, manipulate their bodies, or having a company edit them in a certain way, it's sickening because we can't help but believe those images until we stop and think differently from them. And I imagine that a lot of young women see those images and believe them right away. Some of them may not even realize how fake they are, but even when you know that something's been altered, know when something's been enhanced or manipulated in order to convince you of something else, I don't know if our brains can fully 
like protect ourselves from that comparison trap. You know what I mean? And this is why, as I've spoken out a bunch of times, like I, I unfollowed a lot of people and I started to tune into my gut feeling that I get when I see something that brings up the comparison trap. I know what it feels like in my body so clearly now. And I think a lot of people do. And I've started to train myself fairly recently to hide those type of posts, to unfollow those type of people or never follow them to begin with. To sh- like on, on TikTok, you can say like, I'm not interested in this. Like I'm starting to curate the algorithm more so that I don't even get exposed to that stuff. But it's hard. I mean, I think part of the point of this article, and it's not certainly just not just Facebook and Instagram, part of the point is that these algorithms will find a way. And you have to stop and wonder, like, why are they so determined to show us things that are bad for our mental health? Is it malicious? I hope not. But what I think is it's the, the blatant thing of sex cells. You know, like if we start to break down. Why are women, and not just women, certainly, it's not a gender thing, although I feel like it happens more with women who present as female, I should say, people who present. It's that pressure. It's knowing that sex sells. So if they look a certain way, they may get more attention and that attention can turn into money or success or whatever else, or being desired. I mean, simply just feeling desired could be an ultimate goal, right? Like we feel so empty. And if we are validated, if we feel like people believe us to be beautiful enough that we will finally feel full. And I can tell you from my experience, that's absolutely not true. And it does not serve me in a deep way. And that's why I don't want to participate in that. And I think that pressure, though, is really tough. And I imagine for the teenagers who are the subject of this article, Jason, like, as you were saying, we remember what it's like to be in high school and the pressure we felt when social media didn't even exist for us. But we could maybe avoid the people that made us feel uncomfortable at school. You know, like, we don't have to hang out with the popular kids. Maybe we want to, but we could choose to sit in the different side of the cafeteria, you know, avoid them as all possible, not go to the parties. Like we could like choose to take us ourselves out of those situations. But on social media, sometimes the algorithm shows us things that we don't want to see, or maybe our urges to see and obsess over people are so strong as is also brought up in this article of of teens wanting to spend more time on platforms like Instagram, but they lack the self-control to do so because they feel so addicted. They know they're seeing is bad for their mental health, but they feel unable to stop themselves. And that's very different than in-person experiences, I believe. Because let's just say like in my head, I go to, okay, you're in high school Maybe there's a girl in school or a guy, you know, again, let's try to take gender. There's a person in school that you find yourself in the comparison with, like whatever quality of theirs you're comparing yourself to and feeling less than or better than, I suppose. You can't really stalk them in the way that you can on social media, right? Because they're going to see you staring at them. So you're probably not going to do that or do it, not do it much. You probably can't follow them around and look at everything that they're doing and, you know, ask them about their lives. Like the in-person experience is vastly different than social media, where if that person chooses to take a ton of photos of themselves and post them, write in-depth captions, post stories, like do all this oversharing that people tend to do on social media, man, you could spend your entire night after school stalking this person, knowing every detail about them. And it's addicting, but clearly not good for your mental health. And maybe the social media platforms know this. This is what keeps you on the platform and they're profiting off of it. So they're thinking, ah, it's not so bad. Ah, they'll, They'll be fine. They're enjoying it. If they're not, they wouldn't use it if they didn't enjoy it, right? But I think this is just going to be continue to become a massive issue. And if it's hard for me as an adult woman, I can't imagine how hard it is for a teenager who hasn't fully mentally developed. I want to go back to your point. Many great points you made, Whitney, but one in particular where you said you don't think they're being malicious. 
I think it's a really fine line because if you think about their revenue model, which is based on advertising, that's not the only revenue model that certainly Facebook and Instagram have, but they make a lot of their revenue from their advertising. So what is the line between maliciousness and strategic business offerings in the sense that you talked about pre-social media, right? We'd be around watching TV as kids and we'd see ads. We'd see ads for Bud Light. We'd see ads for Chevrolet, for Dove body soap, for grape nuts, whatever the hell was on in the 80s and 90s, right? But those ads were not targeted in such a expert and exacting way as they are now. Digital technology, algorithms, the technology that tracks us and learns our interests, our psychographics, the things we're interested in. It's so advertising is so much more insidious now in the digital realm because it's targeted with such precision to stick its finger right in our inadequacies, stick its finger right in our fears, stick its finger right in the things that we feel awful about ourselves. So I think the difference here is it's not that you didn't see, you know, commercials for the Bowflex and Jazzercise and all that shit pre-social media. We did see those. But the difference now is that they have so much more information about us online that when those ads pop up, it is as if they are speaking right to all of our fears and insecurities. That is the hugest difference since the advent of social media. So when you say you don't feel they're being malicious, I may disagree. I may disagree in the sense that I think they damn well know that they are making literally billions of dollars on this targeted, exacting, laser-focused advertising, which preys on all of those things I mentioned. But they don't stop it. Why don't they stop it? It's too fucking profitable. Why would they stop? Well, that's in in the article, actually, that Maura continued on. There's a section about a 19-year-old who searched Instagram for workouts, and then the app started to show her tons of photos of how to lose weight, the ideal body type, what she should and shouldn't be eating. And now she can't escape it. Right. And so, listen, I've found ways to kind of quote, combat the algorithm, but that's a temporary thing because meaning I have to be very mindful about who I follow and what I type in the search engine. But not everybody's going to realize that. And some people are going to type things in innocently not realizing that the algorithm is going to then be like, oh, she's interested in this, huh? Like, let's start showing her other things. And as easy as it sounds to ignore that, right? It's not, our brains work very differently. So if you start seeing all these ads about the ideal body type, it's like, to your point, Jason, like a subtle messaging of like, well, you're not quite ideal yet, but we'll show you how if you watch this, if you buy this, if you follow this person. And I think, you know, we have to also call out the people that are profiting from it by being content creators, right? And this is something I'm becoming increasingly passionate about and very mindful, especially like, you know, given all the work you and I have done over the years, Jason, with brand sponsors, like I've had this, this like, gut reaction of hesitancy to working with brands. And it it's still confusing to me, but I think at some level, it's being very wary about what I promote because I don't want to be part of that world of convincing someone that they need a product or service in order to be whole as a person. You know, like... Bingo. And a lot of content creators are profiting deeply off of that. And they they may not even realize it because the brands are so good at messaging the creators and enticing them with more exposure, with more opportunities, with money, with great experiences, all of this feel-good stuff, which you and I have both experienced, Jason. And luckily, there aren't a lot of brands that or services that I've worked with that I have regretted working with. But I'm sure if I dug through, there are some things that are questionable. There are some things that I promoted. Certainly, I spent a lot of time talking about weight loss and all that stuff. Like I thought it was like kind of an innocent thing, right? But in hindsight, I feel very differently about that now. And I certainly don't want to promote weight loss. And 
even though I'm a big advocate for the keto diet, for example, I'm very mindful about how and when I talk about keto because keto is often associated with weight loss and I don't want to promote weight loss. That's not you know, a whole nother subject matter, but that's not why the keto diet has become such a big part of my life. That's not like the main and only reason of it. But I certainly haven't been impacted by this whole weight loss world. And I still continue to be. It's really hard, especially for someone like me who has a history of disordered eating. I have to be very mindful. And that's exactly why I usually don't follow any of those type of influencers. I don't want to see their perfect bodies. There's one in particular who who I have had as a strong acquaintance. I'm not sure if the word friend would pertain, but I try to use the word friend very carefully. But I would say at least borderline friend, very influential fitness person. And I noticed that I was feeling incredibly triggered by this influencer's content, especially lately. This influencer's body got very, very slender noticeably to me. And I found myself going, oh my gosh, like, look how slender this person is. And every time I would see this person's content, that's what I would think. And I would find my brain going, well, maybe, maybe you should see what this person's doing because you know what I mean? Like that's where my brain will go. And then I have to like notice it, stop it. And then ultimately avoid that person because I'm triggered by them. Is this person a bad influence? Maybe not universally, but for me, not a positive influence, right? But I have seen countless influencers that I believe are capitalizing off of all of these things that you're mentioning too, Jason. So like, there's this whole system that people are participating in and pushing, not to mention all of the teenagers out there who aspire to be influencers, So if they're seeing these people getting tons of validation, money and gifts and experiences and all of these things, you know, buying their own homes and having happy, like all of the highlight reel shit that they see from influencers and they think, I want to do that. Now they start to model themselves after those influencers and the cycle continues. Meanwhile, these platforms are all benefiting from it because those creators are bringing more traffic and the brands are benefiting from it because the brands are making all this money from these creators. So it's like this bizarre ongoing world that we're in beyond the personal effects is my point. It goes beyond somebody seeing a post and envying somebody else's life. What starts to happen is the modeling behavior. Oh, well, this girl is posting this photo and this pose and she looks really great and people are liking it. I'm going to try doing that same pose. I mean, you and I have talked about this, Jason. Like when we were starting Wellevator, I'll never forget like one of the videos we did and the talks that we gave was like how there were those standard facial expressions and poses that people would do. And it was like everyone was copying each other. And like when you step back and look at it, you're like, that's kind of bizarre. Everyone is like, and you see this on TikTok, everyone's doing the same dances, everyone's using the same music, you know, doing it. It's because they see it working for somebody else or they want to do it better. And then that just becomes this ongoing competition. And you can't get out of the comparison trap at that point. And even if you're not participating in it, you see other people doing it, which is brought up in this article. In one of the focus groups that Instagram did, teens were saying, I felt like I had to fight to be considered pretty or even visible. And that's what you see. And I felt that too. The amount of time that I've spent because I thought I had to fight to be considered pretty and I had to fight to be visible on these platforms amongst all these other people. And then ending up in the comparison trap because I was seeing people succeed at things that I didn't feel like I was succeeding with. Not a good feeling. It brings up something that I noticed this past week that I thought was really interesting. And I want to preface this, what I noticed when we're talking about the intersection of commerce, digital technology, and what people's intentions are, whether that's the corporations or the content creators. Before I say what it was, though, 
I remembered years ago, Whitney, reading a quote from Baron Rothschild. And the Rothschild family is one of the oldest, most powerful, richest families in the world. They're a European banking family that's been involved in commerce and banking for hundreds of years, generations. There's also some interesting ties to the Federal Reserve in the U.S. that this sidebar, the Federal Reserve is a privately held corporation. The Federal Reserve is not a branch of the U.S. government, and it's partially owned by the Rothschild family. All that being said, Baron Rothschild, who is credited with kind of being the patriarch of this banking family, said, buy when there is blood in the streets. Now, you could take that literally in the sense that one of the best times to invest is during war, which is probably one of the reasons that we, as the United States, have perpetual war. There's just We've been at war since the country started. That's a side note. But it's also a metaphor, Whitney, for buying when there is blood in the streets. It doesn't have to mean literal blood, but it could mean that people are bleeding out mentally. People are bleeding out because they feel like they're worthless. People are bleeding out because they're confused and afraid in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, there, there's so many articles about investing during chaos when the world is in chaos. And there's a lot of people in this world right now that are making billions of dollars from fear, chaos, death, sadness. It just, it is. I mean, it, it, it is an insidious approach to making money that when there is, quote, blood in the streets, whether that's literal or proverbial, that's the best time to invest your money. I mean, I could go down that road for a long time. My point is this. I saw a pretty influential documentary filmmaker and author and content creator who has gone on record to basically say that, you know, COVID isn't real. This is all a manufactured system to grab control and oppress humanity and all of that, which may or may not be true. I'm not here to refute that or give it credence. What I am saying is, there's a lot of people I've noticed who are like, COVID is bullshit. The vaccine's bullshit. It's all bullshit. Buy my immunity supplement. Hey, guess what, guys? We have the most powerful immunity supplement on the market because all that other stuff is horseshit. So instead of spending your money there, give us the money and we'll make sure that you never have to get a vaccine and never have to worry about your immunity ever again. Now, I want to go on record and say I'm not against people making money, but when there is, quote, blood in the streets and people are afraid and confused, and you try and profit off of it, my initial reaction is like, fuck you. You're no better than anyone else if you're doing that strategy. You're preying on people's fears. You're trying to knock... I try and have compassion, Whitney. I do, but it's hard sometimes because I feel that there are certain people who don't even maybe even realize that they are preying on other people's insecurities and fears. But we've got this natural organic thing, and it's good for you. Yeah, but you're doing it at a time when people are afraid and freaked out, and you're trying to profit off of them. So it's not, to your point, just the corporations, the digital media companies. It's the content creators taking advantage of people and taking advantage of their fear. There's so much more I want to dig into in this Wall Street Journal article, but there, there's one thing that I forgot to mention, Whitney. This was something that I actually wanted to do an episode on a while ago, and it completely slipped my mind. But I think it's a, a good time to bring this up. Back in June of 2021, uh, we're recording this episode in the middle of September. Norway, the entire country of Norway, Whitney, passed a law that makes it illegal for advertisers and content creators on social media to use filters and retouch their photos. So basically, an influencer or an advertiser will have to declare if their figure or their features have been edited and if they have used a filter through a government-approved label. It's the first country, I believe, in the world that's that I'm aware of that banned retouching and filters. There's some interesting articles saying why adding labels won't work, why you know this isn't really going to happen, that this level of transparency and honesty is going is gonna to backfire. We can link to this post on Washington Post talking about this. And Norway's whole point, though, Whitney, and the reason I'm bringing this up was to try and, and fight these unrealistic beauty standards because they saw the effect on mental health of their citizens. It talks about how Norway referenced a 2016 study that found exposure to doctored Instagram selfies directly led to lower body image and mental health issues among adolescent girls. 
So I think it's cool in a way. Some people may not feel it's called the Marketing Control Act in this in the the country of Norway. And they said that the regulations are scheduled to go into effect in July 2022. Now, some people might look at that and go, oh, well, that's, you know, that, that that's against freedom of speech. And that's it's a different country. But, you know, maybe certain people in America, that's against the First Amendment. We should be able to do whatever we want. I'm curious how that hits you. Do you feel I know it doesn't take effect until July of 2022 next year, but do you feel like that's a good thing for Norway to do on a whole as a country? And do you feel, Whitney, that in the U.S., it's a possibility that we might be able to do something like that here? Mm, My gut reaction is that, I mean, it's certainly not a bad thing, but I don't think it's going to make enough of a difference, you know? This is a complicated issue. And we're also, we're steeped in this is a huge part of our culture. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's really changed the way that we relate to one another and the way that we feel about ourselves. And like, it's not a a simple solution. You know, in that article too, it talks about how Instagram gave the option to not show likes because they thought, well, maybe if people aren't so focused on the number of likes that they get, they'll feel better. I opted to turn that feature on, but I often wonder, like, does it make me feel better? I think it does a little, like mainly because I'm a content creator. So the numbers can really get to me, but it's not like it solved that huge problem. And Also in this article, one of the most fascinating parts of it was how an executive was commenting about how people use Instagram because it's a competition. And that's a really interesting perspective on it. It's a competition. How many followers can you get? How many likes can you get? How good can you look in the photos? How much money can you make? What brand deals can you get? Like, It's incredibly competitive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that competitive nature is so built into our psyches and programmed by our society because this whole idea of comparison is such a big deal for us. We compare ourselves in school, like what grades we're getting. We compare ourselves to what college we get into and what jobs we get and how much money we make and what our relationships are like and what are, you know, all on and on and on. So, I think using social media to as a highlight reel is because it feels like a competition. Like how good is my life compared to yours? That And that's like, the more I talk about this, the more I realize why I hesitate to post on social and it just doesn't feel that great anymore. Like it's, it's one thing to post like the Wellevator Instagram account. It's very different. I feel elated by sharing quotes by our guests, which is what we do if you haven't visited our Instagram account. It's just like things that resonated with me or us and and points that people made that I thought were wise. And I, I feel so good celebrating these other people, Jason, when I post that. Sometimes I feel good celebrating the things that I do and I see in life on my other social. But like for the most part, I could take a ton of photos and videos, which I just do naturally. But in terms of posting them, I often just stop and think like, well, why? (laughs) Why am I posting this? Am I posting this because a brand wants me to? Sometimes that's, that's true. And I don't like that pressure. So I generally avoid those relationships. Am I posting this because I'm trying to prove something about myself? Like prove how great my life is, prove that I'm attractive, prove that I'm successful, prove that I know what I'm talking about, all that stuff. And you know what, Jason, a lot of times like I step back and I'm like, I don't need to do any of that. I just don't because it doesn't get me what I really want. And also my life is pretty damn good without having to prove myself on social media. Truly. There's a lot of this like misconceptions about what social media will do for you. And I haven't found a lot of those things to be true, except huge exception is social media has connected me to some incredible people. And it's usually through text-based chat. Just yesterday, I started communicating with this guy named Michael, who I think we were... This was on Twitter, by the way, which I I love Twitter because Twitter is so text-based. It's not about these photos and videos most of the time, right? But I met this guy named Michael because I was um, posting about my cryptocurrency coin. And 
he bought my coin, which for those that don't know, I'm on this platform called Rally. And it's a platform for content creators to start their own economies, which is really neat. And actually, it ties into this conversation because Rally is on a mission to give the creators more power and not be so dependent on some of these platforms. Ironically, Rally is a platform, so I'm sure there's a lot of self-serving interest for them. But as a whole, they're trying to empower and change the system. And I launched a coin called the Well Coin, And we'll link to this in the show notes if you're interested, because it's a huge passion project for me rooted in well-being. And this guy, Michael, bought my coin and messaged me on Twitter. And we were having a conversation about it. And he, I, he just had the greatest heart. And it was one of many conversations I've had through direct messaging. I've had a lot of those on Instagram. In fact, that is my favorite feature of Instagram is the direct message feature. We have podcast listeners message us often and it brings me so much joy. I have people message me on Eco Vegan Gal and on my at Whit Lauritsen account. That's what I care about. And, and truth be told, Jason, that's why I post and that's what's most rewarding. It's not the likes. It's not like public comments. It's the private messages that I get from people. And saying this out loud is giving me a new motivation and clarity about posting because that's also why we do this podcast. Like we're here to talk openly and authentically and vulnerably and truthfully about issues we care about. And when we hear from people through social media, it's like, this is why we have a social media presence, truly, because not everybody's going to want to email. And that's probably one of the main reasons I stick around on social media is because of those conversations. And, I, you know, this is a an opportunity just because it ties in so well is I've been developing a program for over a year now called Beyond Measure, which I've talked about a few times on the podcast. And that's exactly what happened with Michael. We talked on Twitter and I said, Hey, Michael, like I started this, this community called Beyond Measure. You seem like a, you'd be an amazing part of it. Would you like to come check it out? And Beyond Measure is just invite only at the moment. And Michael, you know, was like, I could tell he was a little unsure, but also curious. He said yes. And he showed up to the, our live call. We have live calls every Saturday for Beyond Measure. And he was, it was so delightful to get to know this man who just a few days ago was a stranger, just someone on Twitter. And that, Jason, is what lights me up. Those conversations, those deep conversations that start on social media and then go off of it to become a connection. And it's not about people trying to compare themselves. It's the exact opposite. It's about people connecting and showing love and supporting each other and it is this Beyond Measure project has brought me so much joy. And I felt pressure to promote it on social media and like, you know, do all these big things with it. But it's actually instead become a very organic, slow process that has resulted in deep meaning with incredible people. So it's like, I really believe that if you can use social media in a deeper way, that that's where it comes back to the original meaning of it, where it's not about money and comparison and manipulation and all of that nonsense and fear, like you brought up too, like social media can bring up so much fear and sadness. But I think when social media is used for self-expression and connection, it's a remarkable thing. And my hope is that that's where social media goes. That's, I think right now we are kind of at this point where we see a lot of advertisement on there and we're probably going to experience that for a long time. And we're going to continue to have people sharing their lives in a way to get something out of it from someone else. You know, it also reminds me of MLMs, Jason. I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's this documentary that's being talked about a lot called Lula Rich. It's about this brand called Lula Row. And Lula Row was this infamous or is, I don't know if it's still operating. I think it might be infamous MLM. And they 
were known for their leggings and their like dresses and things. And these women would buy these clothing and sell them. And the documentaries on Amazon Prime, it's a four-part series sharing the whole history and how it's impacted people. And as I was watching it and reflecting, we've talked about MLMs on the show a few times and generally don't have a lot of positive things to say about them, mainly because MLMs start off, I believe, with a good mission. Like I know people, we've talked about this before too. Jason's done an MLM. I kind of did an MLM. I know friends that are in MLMs currently. Like I see the the reason behind it. It's that desire when you believe in something to share it with others and make money. And LuLaRoe was known for that, for helping women generate income while staying at home and being with their families. That was the way that they convinced people to be part of this company. So at the core, there's humanity in there. But what would happen, and the reason, I think the main reason that you and I, Jason, did not resonate with it is that the deeper you got into MLM, the more you realized that you were just being used as a pawn to find as many people as possible to join in to make more money for this big company. And that's why it's called a pyramid scheme too, is that it ultimately benefits the people at the top. And a lot of people are being manipulated. And then it harms relationships. And this is the thing, is the number of people that I know that have done MLMs, it has changed the way I felt about them because I don't trust them because I feel like they're always just trying to convince me to join. I have a friend right now who recently joined an MLM and I love this friend deeply. And I've just had to set a lot of boundaries for myself. Whenever she brings up this company, I'm like, I'm going to divert the conversation away from it because <laughs> I don't want this to harm our relationship. And I'm going to be very mindful. And I know deep down that she's doing this to generate money for her and her family. I understand it. I know that she believes in the company. I don't think she fully sees it as an MLM, you know? And I pray that that does not impact our relationship because it sucks when it happens. It sucks to see people feel used and abused by these things. And a lot of these people do that through social media, right? So I think to your main point, Jason, the profiting and the choices that people make to generate income for themselves is a slippery slope. And as you said too, like there's nothing wrong with making money, but we have to be very, very mindful about how we're making money and that how that's impacting us, our friends, our family, but the world at large. And that's probably the the big shift that we're gonna have to make at a certain point. Maybe we'll we'll explode. I don't know. You know, it's like, can we save ourselves from the impact of these sort of things? It's chaotic and so many people are benefiting from it. Is it just going to implode or is it something that we're going to have to deal with with, for the rest of our lives? I'm not sure. I don't know either, but there's a lot of interesting theories about where human evolution is heading. We've definitely talked about some rather esoteric subjects here on the podcast of uploading our consciousness into quantum hard drives having our consciousness exist beyond the death of our physical bodies. (laughs) This is a bit tangential, Whitney, but the other day I was having a conversation with my mom about the new Apple products that came out and we were laughing and reminiscing about when we, my mother and I, our family got our first like real personal computer, not like a Commodore 64 in the eighties, you know, with the floppy disks and super slow, but like a real quote, modern-ish personal computer. It was a compact and it was like the mid-90s. I think I was a, I think I was a freshman in college. I think this was like 1995-96 when we got like our first real like actual PC. And now, 26 years after we got that computer, you can get an iPhone 13 Pro Max, Ultra, Uber, whatever the... <laughs> It's just the names are ridiculous. The biggest, baddest iPhone 13 that at the time of this recording comes out at the end of September 2021 can be had with a one terabyte storage in a phone. Now, for any of us who have been tech geeks like Whitney and myself know that that is insane to think about in a device of this size to have a terabyte of storage. 
it does make me wonder, Whitney, you know, in our lifetime, the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, if, if we are blessed with having that long of a life, what in the name of God are we going to see by the end of our lifetimes? It boggles my mind. Well, the other thing that that brings up to Jason is like, I thought you were going to say this. When that announcement was made, I didn't even know. Like, I don't, I used to pay very close attention to Apple announcements and I didn't know until like it was happening that it was happening. And I see this and you and I are texting about like, oh, did you see the new iPhone? And I found myself thinking, okay, well, it's been three years. I've, I've had the same phone. It's fine. But this new iPhone has such a great camera. And when I was thinking about, aside from the storage, I will say that the storage becomes an issue, but you know why the storage becomes an issue? Because I take photos and videos, right? So if you want to have the nicer camera with the higher quality, it's going to take up more space. So you need more space, right? Those are that and the battery power, I suppose, are the three things, three reasons why I've been considering getting that phone. It's an expensive phone. And I have been reflecting on whether or not I want to get it or when I want to get it. And you know what, Jason? It's like, do I need to take better photos and videos? Not really. Yeah. I mean, my camera takes fine photos. Totally. And I have another camera. I have this new H or 4K camera. We each of us, for those that watch our YouTube channel, invested in these nicer cameras, but that's because we record for the podcast. It's not a need but it ties directly into something we're really passionate about. Right now, I'm not making money off of my photography unless I work with a sponsor to post on social media. And that doesn't fully resonate with me. I don't need to post TikToks and Instagram story videos and all this other stuff. So do I really need an iPhone 13? No. And when I think about all the storage, do I need all of the things that are taking up the storage on my phone? No. And do I need the longer battery power? Or perhaps is it better for me to have a phone that doesn't last as long, Jason? Because do I need to spend that much time on my phone every day? I mean, when you stop and ask yourself these questions, maybe it's better to have an older phone. It's almost as if they're creating these phones. I don't want to say for influencers, because in the scheme of human population, people who would label themselves as a content creator or influencer, God knows if there are any actual statistics on this. But I would have to imagine, I'm assuming, Whitney, it's a significantly small portion of the human population that would label themselves as such. But to your point, the way that you're describing, I mean, cinema mode, you know, it's like it's like 4K, 30 frames, 24 frames per second, like cinema quality. I saw some of the footage and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like this is on a phone. It's truly from a technological perspective. It is remarkable to your point, though. Who's using this and why? Why are we using this? Why does the average person need a 4K video at 24 frames per second in cinema quality? Like it's like filmmaker shit now. Truly, which is part of the reason I geeked out because you and I have a film school background. It was like, oh, my God, can you imagine having this when we were in film school? It would have been insane. Well, we're not in film school and we're not filmmakers anymore. And maybe there's that part of me that's like, oh, yeah, but I could use it for all this stuff. Like I had that that mental dialogue. But then I thought, I don't think I'm actually going to use it for that shit. <laughs> I don't. And, and from a technological perspective, there's something called planned obsolescence. That is part of the business model of certain corporations, meaning the rate of technological progress accelerates exponentially to the point where after three to four years, because of the iOS updates and the things, they start to force you to upgrade because the older technology on your device doesn't work well with the upgraded software. The software starts to outpace the capabilities of the hardware essentially forcing you to upgrade the hardware to match the capabilities of the software. This is an actual strategy that companies employ. Automakers did it years ago. Tech companies are doing it. You can't tell me that this shit is meant to last 10 years. I don't know anyone with a smartphone, be that a Android device or a fucking iPhone that has had it last a decade. I don't know anyone. I don't even know if it's possible unless you don't update the software. If you don't update the software, you could do it. But then guess what? Well, you're going to miss out on the features and you're going to miss out on the security updates and you're going to miss out on all the great cool shit you can do. 
So planned obsolescence is absolutely a part of the business strategy. It's like, do I need a new phone? I do not. And I noticed myself being wooed by the shiny new object syndrome. Like, but it's got cinema mode, Jason. I'm like, oh, fuck, what's cinema mode? I need cinema mode. No, I don't. What the hell am I going to do cat videos? Do Oscar worthy cat videos? It's actually kind of a cool idea. I probably would use it for cat and dog videos. But to your point, it's not <laughs> yeah, a necessity. And who are you going to show it to? Right. And it's like, I found myself thinking, gosh, I wish I had the iPhone 13 when I went to the national parks a few weeks ago. But it's like, I took all these photos and videos that are just sitting on my phone because I don't feel called to share them on social media. Maybe one day I will. But the amount of photos and videos I've taken over the years that I've never shared with anyone else, and they're just sitting there taking up space, which I have to pay for in iCloud storage or a hard drive or whatever else, is insane. Not to mention, I can't remember if we if I shared this on the podcast, I feel like I might have in a few previous episode, how it's actually better for us to not take photos because we will remember it more. But when we take a ton of photos, our brains go, oh, okay, I don't have to remember that because it's in a photo. So it actually, I don't know if it harms our memory or just prevents us from remembering in detail, but taking photos and videos could actually be detrimental to the present moment. Oh my gosh. Speaking of which, <laughs> I saw this video the other day. It was it was some silly video of people at the opening of like Universal's Halloween series, which is also nuts because Halloween's over a month away at, at the time we're recording this. But, you know, they have like Fright Nights or whatever they call it. And it maybe it was Six Flags. I don't I think it was Universal. Though. It doesn't matter. One of those theme parks opened up and you can now go to like their Halloween scary nights and it was footage of someone holding up their phone recording like the start of it right and they were in a crowd behind people and so from their perspective you could see all these people in front of them holding up their phones almost every single person there was capturing that moment through their phones and i, I was watching that clip thinking oh my gosh this is absolutely nuts all these people are so focused on recording something to share on social media or to watch later instead of just savoring the moment. That has become the average experience. And then on the other hand, Jason, given that September 11th, the 20th anniversary just passed, I was watching a lot of footage of it and looking around all the people with, that did not have phones because in 2001, cell phones were something that a lot of people had, but used for phone calls. Most phones did not have email. Most phones did not take great photos. Maybe they could kind of, I mean, I remember like a flip phone I had that was not, it was just not something you would use. So you would bring a separate camera with you and you would only bring that camera to capture specific moments, right? Because the battery life wasn't great or the memory cards, to your point, Jason, didn't fill that much or, or maybe you had a disposable camera and you could only take 30 photos or a film camera, right? Like back 20 years ago, you were very intentional about what you captured. And so during September 11th, the footage was mainly newscasters recording this, and professional photographers or people that, you know, enjoyed taking photos, capturing some pictures, but like it wasn't people. I was thinking like, if that were in 2021, what you would see in that footage is hundreds, thousands of people standing in the streets of New York City with their phones up capturing the moment. And I have, I don't know about you, Jason, but like, I remember some things pretty vividly about that day, but I also have a lot of like blank spots. Like I don't, I don't remember the timeline. Like I, I know where I was when I heard about the planes hitting the towers, but I don't remember if I saw on television, the, the buildings coming down or if they had already come down, like there's like gaps in the day that I don't recall. So it's really interesting. Like had I had a camera that I was using, you know, during that day to capture it all. Well, like, would I remember more or 
what I remember less, I guess, is the question, right? Like, how could that have impacted me if that were happening now? And then I think about like what COVID has been like and how people have documented COVID. I guess in a way, it's nice to see other people's experiences that they share on social, right? Certainly, I use platforms like TikTok to stay in the know. Like right now in September 18th, 2021, the top news story that I'm following is the Gabby Petito story. And I'm using TikTok to stay up to date on it. I'm grateful for people posting about these things. I'm grateful for people sharing their experiences on social. Like I said, I don't think social is all bad, but we have to just really consider how we're using it and using these devices and communicating with one another and what are the purpose it serves and the long-term damage, I suppose, is the biggest question. And there's a lot of question marks around all of this. But I think your point in bringing this up is like, there's question marks for us as consumers, but what is happening behind the scenes with all these big corporations that are driving this? Like, what is TikTok thinking about? Are they highlighting the Gabby Petito stories just for entertainment value? And as we talked about in a previous episode, it's like, that's kind of sickening that we're using a missing girl story for entertainment. I have to step back every day and ask myself, why am I paying so much attention to this story? Is someone suffering benefiting me on an entertainment level? And to be frank, yes. Do I want to participate in that? I'm not sure, to be honest. But the company, TikTok's certainly benefiting from it, you know? All the time that someone like me might spend on TikTok, entertaining myself, distracting myself, coping, they are making money from that. So they're, of course, going to keep it going and they're not going to stop us and they're not going to encourage us to pause and think twice about what we post and what we watch. I think that's the big thing here. And near the end of this article, closer to the end of this article, the original article we referenced on Wall Street Journal about the mental health effects of Instagram on teenage girls. It talks about some of the findings in this internal review and internal study. It says social comparison is worse on Instagram, states the Facebook deep dive into teen body girl images in 2020, noting that TikTok is grounded in performance while users on Snapchat, a rival photo and video sharing app, are sheltered by jokey filters that, quote, keep the focus on the face. In contrast, Instagram primarily focuses heavily on body and lifestyle. The features that Instagram identifies as the most harmful to teens are at the platform's core. The tendency to share only the best moments, a pressure to look perfect, and, addictive, and an addictive product can send teens spiraling toward eating disorders, an unhealthy sense of their own bodies, and depression, this internal research states. It warns that the Explore page, which serves users photos and videos curated by their algorithms, can send users even deeper into content that can be harmful. Aspects of Instagram exacerbate each other to create a perfect storm, the internal research states. Here's where I want to leave it. The research has been reviewed by top Facebook executives and was cited in a 2020 presentation given to Mark Zuckerberg, according to the documents. Here's where it gets interesting. At a congressional hearing this March 2021, Mark Zuckerberg defended the company against criticisms from federal lawmakers about his plans to create a new Instagram product for children under the age of 13. When asked if the company had studied the app's effects on children, he said, I believe the answer is yes. They know what they're doing. They're not going to protect you. They're not going to shelter you. They're not going to be compassionate about your mental health. They're here to make money and make a lot of it. So the onus is on us as citizens to figure out how to navigate this minefield, this mental health minefield together, to discuss it, to figure out strategies. I don't know that we have a solution at the end of this episode. We usually don't end on a solution. But I think it's clear to me, Whitney, reading this, that they know what's happening. They know how it's affecting people. Their chief executive is kind of denying it. It's fucked up for a lot of reasons. So... It's an ongoing discussion of how do we manage this? How do we protect ourselves? How do we engage when this is so, as you said, deeply embedded, the tentacles of it are so deeply embedded in the, the consciousness of our culture? It's not going anywhere anytime soon because there's too much money in it. So what do we do and what can we do? It's an ongoing conversation of 
realizing that we're easily addicted to it? Can we limit our screen time? Can we acknowledge our addiction? Can we have a healthier relationship with it? It's an ongoing question. And we've got to take our power back and figure it out somehow, I think. If we're going to continue as a human species, <laughs> I mean, we certainly have climate change, we have COVID, we have financial issues with the world. But I think this is up there with those issues, Whitney, in my mind, because of the division, because of how it's ripping people apart, because of its how it's increasing suicidal ideation. So we're curious, dear listener, dear viewer, how you feel about this, if Maybe you have a, a teenage son or daughter. Maybe you're witnessing how it's affecting them or like us who are adults, grown adults, how it's affecting us. We, we just always love to hear your thoughts, perspectives, and musings on these subject matters. So you can email us. Whitney and I are at hello at wellevator.com. That's our direct email address. You can also send us a direct message on Instagram or any of our social platforms. It's at Wellevator. And of course, the hub where we will have the show notes for this episode, the Wall Street Journal article, the Washington Post article, any of the resources and research that we mentioned today, you will find that all at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Thank you for making it through this deeply introspective and, and somewhat heavy episode. We're appreciative of your perspectives. Whitney, thank you as always for weighing in with so much sagacity and perspective on this because it is concerning and disturbing. And I don't know what as humanity, what we're going to do about it, but we got to figure it out. So until next time, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you with another episode soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.